Morning Church, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? <clears throat> Today we're reading from uh, Revelation 5, verses 6 through 10. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, for every from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Liv. <clears throat> I'm super excited for today. One, um, our family's been gone for the past two weeks, so it's one, just really good to see you all again. And um, we are just glad to be back, glad to be back in the, the throw of things. It's always weird when you take like vacation and you come back and that like switching things back over, you're like, no, no I'm not, I'm not, I refuse responsibility. I will wear jammies for three days straight, thank you. So we're really glad to be back, guys. Uh, today's a little bit different. Uh, it's a bit of a standalone message, so we're not in Ecclesiastes this morning. Uh, we're going to be um, having a little bit of a standalone message, and then we'll get right back into that next week. Uh, I'm super excited again about today and our, our passage and our scripture, so uh, let's just jump on into things. Uh, about three weeks ago, uh, our nation remembered uh, the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, a holiday that comes around every year, um, and it's just an incredible time to celebrate the life and the achievements of that Remarkable, remarkable man. Now, King, most of you guys know, was truly uh, an inspiring person. Uh, one of the most, I would say, inspiring people that our nation has had. And uh, if, just to add a little bit of history, if you're a little bit dodgy there, uh, in the 50s and 60s, so he helped catalyze this nation around the necessity of civil rights for black and brown people in America. Now, how did he accomplish this? How did he help move the needle in a way that, that he did? And uh, I'm just going to suggest right off the bat that it was inspiration. Truly, truly inspiration. He set before the people of our nation a vision of what could be to inspire us and to awaken us as to what should be in America, how we should act in light of what could be in our nation. And in fact, that's exactly what he did. In August 1963, a king stood in Washington, D.C. in front of the Lincoln Memorial, and he gave his very famous, you guys are aware of this, his, his famous uh, I have a dream speech, a vision of what could be in our nation. And I just want to read just a small excerpt, excerpt of it, mostly just because I think it's one of the most fascinating and inspiring speeches uh, written. Uh, and so let me just read this for you real quickly. It's on the screen. You can follow along. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of the skin, but by the content of the character. I have a dream today. He goes on and on in a most incredible passion and emotional speech to inspire what could be in light of where we are. 
Now that was almost 60 years ago. That's incredible. 60 years. That's a, that's a long time. It feels like a long time. And here we are this morning. And what can we say? What can we say kind of about where we've come, about how, how far we've come? What can we say about that? Well, I think, I think we can say a couple of things for sure. Um, that's not going to help. It's not going to help at all. We're good. Uh, one of the things I think we have to say uh, is this. In many ways, a lot of things have improved since 1960. Since that speech in 63, I think we can say a lot of things have improved. Uh, we had the Civil Rights Amendment that was passed into legislation. Uh, that needle, it's just moved in our country in meaningful ways that have made things better for minorities and different ethnicities, black and brown folk in America. And many things have improved since that time. And we want to thank God for that. We want to stop and thank God for those things. All the ways that things have improved since then, we want to say yes and amen. But at the same time, in, in some really other, really profound ways, uh, there's still a massive gap between what could be and between what is. All right, and so I, I just think you guys will admit this. It doesn't take a whole lot of looking around to, to see that that's the case. Now, now, what do I mean when I say that? Well, let me just take a look at a couple of issues that are current in our world today, current in our world right now. One, let's just look at wealth, like uh, financial uh, inequalities uh, of, of different ethnicities. So in America, like the median net worth, the need, median net worth of a black person today is 8% of a white person at the same stage of life. Median. Did you know that? I, here's what that means. If I am worth $100,000, and yes, Lord, please, but if I am worth $100,000, that means my black peer next to me at the same stage of life is worth, valued at $8,000. That's the median across our country. That statistic blows me away. Think of how, think of how that would impact your ability to experience things like upward mobility. If you are a black man or a woman or a brown man or a woman in the pursuit of education, think of how dramatically that would impact that situation for you. Okay, let's just, uh, let's just look at a, a little bit others. That also like, works for education across the board, but let's look at another issue. Let's take a look at uh, just a slice in our justice system. Um, so statistically speaking, uh, stats show us that uh, white people and black people statistically use illegal drugs at almost the exact same rate. So if you take a whole bunch of white people and you take a whole bunch of black people and you, you poll them, you'll find that illegal drug usage between them is almost identical, same, same, same percentage. Um, so, so here's why, what's fascinating about that. The imprisonment rate for illegal drug charge is six times that for a black person than it is for a white person. The usage is the same, but the imprisonment rate is six times that for a black person over a white person. I just find that fascinating, terrible, but it's fascinating. Over six times the arrest and convictions for black people over white people. What kind of effect does that have in a community over time? A lot. That's going to have a big effect. Dramatic effect. But okay, we're, we're not here harping on those, those points at all. We're just looking at data points. Let's move on for, for another one. Instead, let's just talk about population distribution. Uh, uh, are the lives of different cultures and ethnicities, are, are we seeking to live in overlapping and meaningful ways or not? Uh, how do we live? Where, where do we live? What does that look like in our nation? Uh, but he, all you have to do is look at this thing that's called the racial dot map. Now, the reason I mention this is because I want you to go and find this. 
I want you to go and look it up. It's fascinating. You can pull up any city in America. It started in 2010, and it went to 2020, and they stopped, and then they redid it because they had new data points. But what it does is it takes a, a section of the country, a city, whatever, and it shows you by colored dots which ethnicities live where. And so uh, they took it down in 2020. CNN came out with a brand new one in regards to the 2020 census. And so I just want, I want to take a look at this. I want you to take a look at it with me and just kind of see a few things that the map sh shows us. So uh, we're going to take a look at Detroit first. So I want you to uh, look at this up here, up here on the screen. And so here's what the dots are saying. I know it's a little bit further away, but I'm going to walk you through it. So um, each dot represents 150 people. Light blue represents white people. Orange, black. Uh, red, Hispanic, dark blue, Asian, purple, native Hawaiian Pacific Islander, green, American, Alaskan native, and yellow, all the others that didn't fit into those categories. Now, um, you can go online, type in your city, type in a zip code, and look at any city you want to. And you can find out how the population distribution uh, works here. And so uh, here we are. This is Detroit. Um, light blue dots are white, orange dots are black, red dots are Hispanic. Now, look at that hard line right on top. See that like horizontal? Nope, not anymore. You're not going to look at it anymore. But there's that flat line that goes all the way across. That line is on the famous eight-mile road. An eight-mile road, that is a super hard designating separation line of where different ethnicities live. I mean, it's, it's interesting, but you can even look and see like there are specific areas where certain races live and other races don't. And uh, it, that, I just find it super fascinating. Uh, these dots represent where actual humans live according to the race. And uh, it's not incidental. Th that doesn't just happen because it happens. Now, now, let me show you another one. Let's take a look at our Metroplex. So this next one is the DFW hub. And so um, even there, right there, one, it's very pretty. I love colors. hope you like colors too. It's very pretty, but even right here, you can see there's a lot, lot of distinct areas that focus around one race where other races aren't. Look up in Dallas. Like, you're going to see the same thing happening over and over. You're going to see a lot of light blue on the north. You're going to see a lot of orange and red uh, in, on the south side of things, and that's just kind of how things work. I can, look, I can show a whole bunch of different cities over and over, and you're going to see something very similar to this play out. It's incredibly, incredibly uh, divided. And so, um, it's, again, it's not incident, incidental. Uh, there are reasons for this. And my point in all this is this. Uh, the fact that this is, if you and I are to look at any data points we kind of want to in this area this morning, here's what we're going to come to. Uh, whether we like it or not, data shows that we live in a, a very racialized society. We just do. It's just the facts. We live where race matters a whole lot. What you look like is going to have a dramatic effect on your opportunities, your financial worth, where you live, all, the, all those kinds of things. And all I'm doing is looking at the data and saying, here's what the data says. Data? 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 Yeah. We're looking at the information, and we're saying, here's what the information says. Now, I want you guys to take a look at something with me real quick because uh, this is, well, one of the reasons why we're doing this this morning. And so, uh, uh, Faith, bring up that, that image again of the DFW area. And we're going to look at a little section right here at the bottom left of our screen. We'll walk over here, and there's not going to be any screeching from the thing. Okay, good. So, yeah, here we are. Here's our little Burleson area right here. 
Here's a little Crowley going on right there. A little South Funky Town right there. Okay, that's where we are. So that's the blurb that we're looking at. I want you guys to kind of pay attention there. Uh, you'll see on the south side of Burles, mid, middle, middle of Burson going down, you're going to see a lot of blue dots. But heading up, you're going to see a... Oh, now we're talking. 20 points back there, Pastor Derek. So you're going to see uh, quite, quite a bit of, of, of diversity already happening where we are. Now, you guys know this. You live here in this area. That's not a shocker or a surprise. Uh, but let's just uh, talk a little bit about Crowley. That's just because this is the town that we meet in and gather in on Sunday morning. Let's just talk about that. So listen to these numbers. Crowley, since the last census in 2010, has grown 42% in 10 years. You should be worried. No, not worried, but I mean, it's, we are in a, a huge growth spot. That puts us at a, a 5.24 annual increase every year, and that rate has increased every year for the past six years. We are in an upward trajectory. I love a good bar graph. I should have done it. I'm sorry. So, so right now, Crowley is hitting somewhere just under 20,000 people. So what, that's where we are right now, which is more than, way more than I thought, way more than the signs on the side of the road say, don't trust those things. They're lying to you. But like every, here, here, here's the point. Every growth expectation analysis in our area shows that we are about to boom. We're about to be in a spot over the next five to ten years that is going to explode. We have the Chisholm Trail Parkway, and a whole bunch of that expectation of growth that's building up over there is about to be huge. And so check this out of what they expect. Some projections are forecasting us to go, grow, grow from 20,000 in Crowley to 37,000 in five to ten years. And I just thought of this right now, but if you guys, you can go and look and see how many new housing developments are being built right now. It's massive. I know there's a 3,000 and a 2,000 home area. You put four people in each one of those homes, we're talking a lot of people. That's, 20, that's that 35,000, 37,000 right there, just in those homes. It's a lot of people. Now, here's how population growth tends to work. Just uh, as a general rule, here's kind of how it works. It moves from like the city hub center to the surrounding suburbs and onward and out. So things start inside, and what's inside kind of moves its way out and over the course of years. So that's kind of how things work. So I don't know if, if you can see what I'm... Oh, the map's gone. You can't see it anymore. Can the map come back up? Hey, again. Uh, I don't know if you guys are seeing what I'm seeing, but this little area in these city hubs, the uh, downtown Fort Worth area moving out, don't you do it? That downtown Fort Worth area, like, I don't know if you guys are seeing what I'm seeing, but there's not a whole lot of blue. There's not a whole lot of light blue going on there. You guys seeing that? There is some where we are, but the stuff that's going to be moving down, the people that have been coming down are not blue dots. See a whole lot of red. See a whole lot of orange. Not a whole lot of white. But here's, here's my point here. You don't have to be a demographer. I wanted to say that word so bad, so I just threw it in there. It's the person who reads maps. You don't have to be a demographer to look at this. That's the cartographer. I messed it up. Let's not go on. Let's not go on. Let's just move on. To see that diversity is already here and more of it is coming. That's just what's, in the, that's what's happening. That's what's in our future over the next five to ten years. We don't know to what extent. We don't know if that's going to be 10,000. We don't know if that's going to be 20,000 people. But we can look at the projection, projections of the data and we can safely say that diversity is on our way to our city. And I just want to say, and here's what we as a church are saying this morning, that is a precious gift of God for us. It is a precious gift of God for us. It's a gift of God to this city. As our diversity to the city increases, 
What we want to produce in our church family is people with soft hearts and open arms that create a welcoming environment and atmosphere for people of color that are different than you to come and worship and engage and be members of this church trophy. That's what we want. That's what we want to be a part of. But I think you guys will admit, I'm going to admit this, that I'm going to need a little bit of that like Martin Luther King version of inspiration to get me there. Maybe I'm not feeling like that's a great thing. Maybe I'm not feeling like that's a great gift to our city or to our church right now. So we, here's what we're going to do. We are going to look at the end of the story, meaning the Bible, Revelation, uh, where our God, through the Apostle John, is going to give us a pictured dream of what's to come. So uh, here's what makes this moment unique. Here's what makes this dream so much different than Martin Luther King's dream. It's not a dream. It's just facts. One of the craziest gifts that we have as Christians is we get to see what happens. God already knows. This is what is coming. He's not showing us what could be. We are about to see what shall be so that we can see what should be now. That's what we're about to see in the, in the book of Revelation. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, you want to open up your phone, open up your app, all the good kind of stuff, go ahead and do that. We're in Revelation 5, and I'm actually going to start reading in verse 9. Uh, and there are three things that we're going to see in this today. Uh, and uh, three things to see for us to fight for diversity and racial reconciliations within our hearts. Three things that we want to see. And here's, here's the first one is this. Jesus purchased peoples. Jesus purchased peoples. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take up the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This, this is the scene, and we're given a sneak peek here uh, in Revelation to heaven at the end of all things. And he, here's the scene there's this scroll containing all the history and all the judgment that's about to be handed down to the earth. And it's in the hand of the one who sits on the throne, God Himself. Uh, and the scroll is bound with a seal, and nobody in heaven or earth can open this thing. Nobody. John actually begins to weep in this vision because no one can open this seal. And all of a sudden, the text says that somebody steps forward, somebody that looks like the lamb that was slain. He steps forward and he reaches into the hand of the one on the throne and he takes the scroll from him. And when he takes possession of this scroll, the text says that all heaven breaks out in a worship song. That song, the words they sing are the undoing of racial, racial prejudice. The song that they sing, the words that they sing, are the undoing of racial prejudice for the Christian. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Who did Jesus ransom? People. From where? Everywhere. From, from 
everywhere, from every tribe. Every tribal group on the face of the planet will have a representative in heaven. Every people, every nation, that word nation in Greek is ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnicity. Think about this. Every ethnic group will have a representative. Every ethnic group will have a representative in heaven with you, praising and worshiping Jesus. That's what's coming for us. It's the greatest party ever. That's what's going to happen. And here's, here's what that means. It means that Jesus didn't just die to purchase people. Jesus has deliberately purchased peoples. Do you see that distinction, that difference? It may seem like it's not because we have people in a plural category anyways, but peoples is a whole bunch different than just a bunch of people. In heaven, your roommates are going to be Zulu, Jewish, Mexican, Japanese, Swahili, African-American, Turkish, Ahi, Hakka, Californians are going to be there. It's going to be incredible. Like, easy, I got excited about the Californians. But it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. God is so huge and so massive that all of us in our distinct ethnicities, somehow, all of us still are made in his image. That's beautiful. We are all going to be represented before our God, boasting in the King of Kings. Jesus purchased the church. The church that Jesus purchased is incredibly diverse. Which means that this is not a red or a blue issue. What we're talking about today, this is not a politics sermon. Not at all. Has nothing to do with it. This is a cross of Jesus sermon. This is something that Jesus purchased. We ought to care about diversity because Jesus cares about diversity. We know it because we're at the end of the story. We're seeing what he bought. We're seeing what he purchased. And, and uh, that's what's coming for us. And let me just say real quick, because I know, I know this can be a, a tough topic. If you've already kind of written me off today as like the doing the snowflake, old millennial social justice progressivist thing, if you've, if you've already done that, I'm inviting you to go and read Revelation for yourself and see if I've missed something. I'm inviting anyone in there. Because I'm just telling you what I've seen in red. It's showing me, it's showing me that Jesus died to purchase peoples for God, which means it should matter to us. It has nothing to do with how you vote. In fact, it's an entirely separate issue, but it has everything to do with what the Word of God says. Do you see that? Do you see that? Now, how much do you care about the issue? Awkward pause. How much do you care about the issue? We want to care about diversity because Jesus cares about diversity. We want to care about racial reconciliation, yes, because Jesus cares about racial reconciliation. Do we want to care about the flourishing of people of color? Yes, because Jesus cares about the flourishing of people of color. My question, though, is this. How much? How much do we care? How much should we care? To what, to what degree should we care? Well, how much did Jesus care? That's actually our second point. Jesus died to purchase people. Jesus died 
to purchase peoples. Verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. By your blood. When what you spend on something communicates its worth to you. You guys get that? You ever bought something that was like, oh, it was too much? It, it was admittedly too much. I'm just going to let you fill in your own blanks because you've been there, I'm sure. But like it meant something to you, so you were like, I'm okay giving you everything I've got for this thing. My family and I just got back from Disney, and let me just tell you, I'm still working on that being okay. Because, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, you, what you spend on something communicates its worth, its value to you. What are you willing to spend on it? And so when the triune God calculates the cost of ransoming people of every tribe and tongue and nation, the price that he comes up with is the highest price in the universe, the death of Jesus himself. That's the value. That's the worth. That's the price tag put on it. And God and Jesus were willing to pay that price because it's worth that much to them. That's the price tag. Let, let, let me say it in a different way. Jesus gave his life to buy a, divi- a, div- a diverse church. That's what he did. He gave his life to buy a diverse church. And here's the thing. If diversity was so valuable to him that he died for it, church, let me just tell you, should we expect it to be any less valuable to us? Church, if he died for it, then we die for it. If something is important to Jesus, it's important to us. If something is critical for him, it's critical for us. So here's our third point. If he died for it, then when we come, we die for it as well. If he died for it, then when we come, we die for it as well. Now, we're going to spend uh, the bulk of our time kind of on this point for most of the rest of the message, and here's why. Uh, because here's, here's the thing about this particular issue. Um, one of the things that is challenging is uh, a lot of people have already decided where they are on this issue. I, I believe this. I stand in this corner, I believe. These things about the here's what I think, here's how I vote. And here's the amazing thing about being a Christian. Uh, When we become Christians, uh, we give up all rights to preference. That's hard. We're going to get to that here in a second, but I'm just painting the picture that puts you and I as fellow Christians in a place where we can sit, even in a disagreement, and hear what the truth of the word has to say. So uh, at this moment, uh, here's what I think. I think that why we're going to spend a lot of time in this section right here is because of this. I think a lot of well-meaning Christians, like myself, tend to get off track right here at about this moment. Now, let me just speak for me. This is Brandon speaking from Brandon's experience. Uh, For pretty much all my life, I have understood and known that racism is is bad. That's been kind of a, a simple thing. Bad? Wrong, I get it. But, but that, that, yeah, that, yeah, but I mean, here's the problem with that kind of thinking. Uh, the problem is that my grid for racism was only hyperbole. 
Like my understanding, my way of thinking about racism was only like massive outside-of-the-box things, you know, um, overt, blatant slavery, Jim Crow, lynchings, KKK, uh, Nazism, like, like big, bold boxes of bad racism things, right? I get it. Those things, bad. I, like those are the things. Those are things that I kind of thought of as I thought of racism. So when I searched my heart in that moment to see uh, what's wrong, it's easy to see in that moment that I'm doing good. Does that make sense? It's easy to feel like you're in good shape when you're comparing yourself to Hitler. Hey, I'm not murdering a million people today. <laughs> not too shabby. You know, I mean, like it's easy when you have that as your comparison to say, I'm not, I, you know, I'm doing all right. I'm doing just fine. That's comparing yourself to that kind of moment that just makes things really easy. And if all Christ was after was, hey, will you tolerate those people that look different from you? Will you just tolerate them? Like, then the truth of us, the truth of that moment is most of us were doing pretty good. I think we're probably going to fall in that category. Hey, can you just tolerate people who don't look like you? All right. Not too shabby, not too bad. But what if Christ is calling us to something richer than just passive tolerance? What if he's calling us to active sacrifice? In a lot of my conversations I've had over the years of being in ministry, particularly with husbands, um, in talking about the role of the husband, uh, it's been interesting to uh, work through a lot of conversations that deal with, uh, here's my job, here's my role, here's my thing I'm supposed to do. And the thing that is just overwhelmingly amazing about the life of a Christian is, is, um, is it's death. It is, it is, it's death. Like the husband's job is to give himself to his wife as Christ gave himself to the church. That's like the worst job description in the world. Can't do it. Super, super hard. I'm supposed to give up my life. So when, I, when I'm thinking of the life of, the, of a Christian, when I'm looking at what it's called to, to pick up my cross and die daily, it's a place where I'm taken outside of comfort, taken outside of, of, um, of safety and what I want in my preference. And instead, what's planted in there is what God and the Word has for us. So see now, when we, when we put it in the act of sacrifice category, uh, now we can start to feel a little uncomfortable. Like, it's, it's okay. It's okay to feel a little uncomfortable there. I will tell you, I have struggled and failed in the active sacrificing for people who don't look like me category. It is okay to say that. It's okay. I have a, a friend of mine who's a pastor of a church. It's a little bit similar to ours, a little bit bigger. And uh, recently, recently he was preaching a sermon that was very similar to this one, similar theme. In the middle of his sermon, a white gentleman stands up in the middle of his sermon and, and looks right at my friend and says very loudly, I'm not a racist! Yeah, about like that. Uh, which, for the record, really doesn't help the guy's case. You kind of, you know what I'm saying, bro, you just kind of showed your hands there. Um, but, I, but I think this conversation kind of highlights that. Maybe some of you right now are feeling that. Brandon, I'm not a racist. Why are you talking to me about this? Are you calling me a racist? I'm not a racist, bro. I love black people. Listen to Stevie Wonder. I got a Selena shirt. Love, I mean, I, I, I'm not racist, man. And, and guys, let me just tell you, I get it. I get it. 
I'm not calling you racist. I'm not calling anyone anything this morning. And by the way, everyone listens to Stevie Wonder. He's amazing, so there's no points there. So. But here's what we're doing instead. I'm not calling anyone anything this morning. This is the word of God inviting you and I to see things differently than we might have before. That's what this is. Okay, so uh, Christ-like love is not just passive tolerance. It's active sacrifice. And you know what? That means there's a cost to pay. You're going to have to pay something. Active sacrifice means you have to pay something. Like, I show my wife I love her not by just letting her in the door at nighttime. All right? That's not love. Hey, you can come in now. All right? Like, that's, that's not love. I show my, life, my, my wife I love her by laying down my life for her. And yeah, I fail on that all the time. But that's how I show love, by sacrifice, actively sacrificing for her betterment. That's how I show her that I love her. And the same goes towards all of us, towards each other. The command of God is not passive tolerance, it's active sacrifice. We should be actively, proactively looking for ways that we can actively sacrifice for others. Now, uh, I know we're kind of talking in the clouds, kind of big picture here, so let's put some legs on it and kind of make some sense. So uh, what are some ways uh, that we can actively sacrifice as a church for the good of others who don't look like us? Especially, especially for those who don't look like us. It fits in all the categories, but let me just give you three. There are a million, but let me just give you three. One, here's one, praying for change. Are you praying for this kind of change? Is it making your prayer list? Does this issue show up when you hit your knees before God? I, I will just tell you, it is remarkable how indicative our priorities are by what our prayer lists show. It's remarkable. It's one of like the oldest tricks in, in, in ministry categories. Hey, tell me, tell me what your prayer life looks like. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm praying all the time in my head. What are the things that you're praying for? Well, I just really want some new shoes. But what I care about are the things that I go to God with. That's just how it works, you guys. Are you going to God with this? Are you asking him to change the heart of our, our nation, our, our town, our church? Are you asking him to break bonds of racism, even in our community? Are you, acting, are you acting, asking God to break bonds of sin in your heart about race? That would be a fantastic place to start, making that a part of your prayer list. God, would you change things here? Would you heal these racial divides that our country has, that our churches have? Would you do that? So the first one is just praying for change. The second one is this, and we mentioned it earlier, but it's dying to your preferences. This is probably one of the most challenging aspects of Christian life for the Christian, particularly in our country. 
if you are a, um, a white person here this morning, uh, it's likely that our worship music on Sundays, for instance, looks and sounds in some way similar to what you are used to and comfortable with in comparison uh, to what you've kind of experienced in the past. Not for everybody, but writ large, that's probably like speaking for most people in the room. The things that we sing up in here are kind of falling into a genre that you're used to, aware of, comfortable with, those kinds of things. Um, we haven't had a large diversity on stage. You haven't seen a wide swath of songs that bridge different cultures in our worship, in our church at large. Uh, but here's one of the things that we just want to share with you up front. We are very intentionally going to change that. We are going to introduce different types of worship music that won't require our minority brothers and sisters to entirely have to hang up their culture and what they're used to to just come in and worship with us. And why should they? Why should we force any or all of our brothers and sisters to have to forget what they're used to and accustomed to within their culture to give that up entirely just to gather with us on Sundays? So long ago, before this church even began, Pastor Derek and myself uh, made the decision to the best of our ability to not force one culture of worship upon all the people that would come and worship with us. It was a decision we made. It was a value that we said we wanted to enact in our gatherings. And let me just own this part right here. So that change will be something that comes, but let me just own this part right here. We're going to be clumsy with it. We're going to mess it up. We're going to not be able to pull it off sometimes. And that's okay. But I'm just saying that we are going to try and serve more than just a white culture at our church. We should do that. We should be welcoming and inviting to other ethnicities and other cultures. And if you live in this area, your neighborhood is diverse. It just is. So that's just one of the things that we're trying to do. And here, here's what that could mean for you. And instead of being frustrated by that, gosh, why won't they just play the hits? Give me those old Christian hits. You know, instead of like coming at it with that kind of approach, um, that kind of attitude, uh, for you to see that this is a way that you can lay down your preference so that you can serve others of different backgrounds and different cultures than what you're used to. That would be such a gift to the current and future minorities that we have here at Trophy Church for you to come with that kind of posture. And, and, and can I just say this part too? Uh, no matter how many preferences, I am speaking to all white folk as one of you, uh, no matter how many preferences you feel like you have to lay down in this moving forward, this active sacrifice of other cultures and other ethnicities and people who don't look like you, no matter how many preferences you think you have to lay down, for everyone, there's about a hundred that our minority brothers and sisters have to lay down. And if they're in this room right now, there's a silent amen going on. Like the, the scale is so uneven of the things that they, have, they would have to give up in order to, to balance it off of the things that we would give up in that moment. And so it, it just, it costs something. It costs something for them to be here. It costs something for our brothers and sisters who do not look like me to be here. And so let me just ask, can it cost something for you too? 
Can we take a cost in that? Can I sacrifice for that? Can I lay down my preferences? Can you die to your preferences? That is a way that we can serve them. So here is another one, number three. Uh, bearing each other's burdens. Bearing each other's burdens. I'm getting this from Galatians chapter 6 too. Um, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, if you know him as Savior, then let me just tell you this right now. You have signed up to carry the burdens of others. You have signed up for it. It is non-negotiable. It is a part of it, part and parcel, the whole thing. That is one of the things that you've just signed up for, to bear some of the pain and difficulties that your brothers and sisters experience. That's what it means. And I, I will never forget uh, this particular moment. I have a good friend of mine, uh, a black friend that I have been in good relationship for a while now. And uh, this particular uh, week happened to be a week, the one that I'm talking about. Uh, at the beginning of the week, there was a police shooting of a black man. And I'd heard about it. We'd all heard about it. And he asked me if I'd heard about it. And I said, yeah. I said, yeah, I have. And he said this, and I'll, I'll never forget it, very politely, very kind. He said, man, uh, it would have meant the world if you had reached out to me about that this week, just, just to check and see how I'm doing with everything. It just would have meant the world if you'd have reached out. And I'm just going to be very open and honest here. Uh, it never even crossed my mind. It was just a bit of data on my newsfeed. Um, something that I didn't engage in very much. And um, to him it meant the world. And, uh, uh, but not for him. That, that didn't mean little to him. It meant a not. And listen, in that moment, I didn't need to debate the guy. I didn't need to debate the guy about whether the officer was wrong or right. That, that, that's not the issue. That's not the point. The point was I didn't have eyes to see that my brother was hurting I didn't have the active sacrifice to step in and bear his burdens with him and hurt with him. And he was in pain, and I wasn't willing to get under that yoke and bear it with him. Now, that's what I mean, by the way, when I say this isn't about politics. It's not. It's about the things that Christ has commanded us to do. And this is what Paul says in, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians. He says, who is weak? And I am not weak. If you are a Christian here, you are meant to bear the weaknesses of your brothers and sisters as they are meant to bear yours, to get under that yoke. <coughs> Didn't have to happen, but let's move on. To bear one another's burdens. And I just, I just want you to think about that real quick. If we took the time to be thoughtful in those ways, to enter into other people's stories, to see what is hurting them on their side of the table, think how much value and dignity that would communicate to that person. And as I say that, let me just say this. We, we need something more than just willpower to enter into this and do it well. You're not going to bootstrap pulling up yourself way, way of going through this. You're just not going to happen. Here's what people need. Here's what you and I need to bear one another's burdens. Empathy. And let me tell you, our culture is killing off empathy. It is straight up under attack. 
It's just not going to come from white knuckling. We need empathy. Here's, here's the definition of empathy. The ability to understand and share the feelings of others. The ability to understand and share the feelings of others. Can I uh, just say, there are a couple things that have been uh, just increasingly helpful to me as I've tried to pursue a heart of empathy towards uh, my minority brothers and sisters. A couple of things have been outrageously helpful. Um, there's been two things in particular, and I just want to commend these to you as we are all uh, just all locking arms and joining together on fighting for this empathy that we need. And so here's uh, the two things. Knowing history and having friendships. Knowing history and having friendships. Uh, let me tell you what I mean uh, by this, no, knowing history. L- let me just say that the, uh, the more acquainted I have gotten with the story of race in our country, the more my heart has softened. Uh, the more I know about where we come from as a nation, the more I understand about how we are where we are now. And the more my heart can break properly for the right things. Let me just give you an example, just learning about things like redlining, um, right? Like this happened uh, right here, even in Dallas and across our nation, redlining that happened against uh, black neighborhoods. If you don't uh, know this term, let me just give you the overview real quick. So in the 30s, as a part of a new deal, our government decided to create a loan program to help families get into their first homes. And so they created these loan programs and they created, uh, in order for us to know who and where they're going to give the loans to, these, these big color maps um, of who gets loans and who doesn't. So um, green parts of the maps were indicated what parts should give loans to, and red parts were indicated to the parts that we should not give loans to. And uh, wouldn't you know it, that almost every one of those zones that were red on the map were over black neighborhoods. 97% of them. Right on top. So what, 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 what does that mean? What are the ramifications of this? Here's what it means. From 1934 to 1962, this is crazy, 98% of all home loans in America went to white people. 1934 to 1962, 98% of home loans in our country went to only white people. That's almost 100%. Just feel that for a moment. Think of how that would affect someone's ability to accrue accrue wealth and how it would make it challenging to not be able to own your own home, to have a property that's yours, to not be able to pass on your home or pass down an inheritance. Think of the snowball effect that that would happen for your kids and your kids' kids and your kids' kids' kids. And we wonder why places like in Oak Cliff, as we drive by, are like, man, this place is so shady. S-H-A-D-Y, in case that came out a little weird. Shady. Why does it look so crummy? There's a reason. There's a reason. It's the brokenness of our history. This is not a let's take an ax to our country. Again, not a politics sermon. It's just history. It's being able to look back and acknowledge the things that have happened. And those things have affected other things. It's good to know them. It helps soften the hearts for us so that we can bear burdens with our minority brothers and sisters. And it's really good. This history is really good for you and I to be acquainted with because it helps produce empathy inside of us. So knowing history matters um, has a way of tenderizing our hearts. 
And I, I don't want to leave you guys uh, hanging with no direction uh, in this matter. In fact, um, I'd love to give you two specific things. I have them with me here. Don't you do it. That's right. Uh, I have two books here uh, that I have and want to commend to you all um, for you to have. Um, just great resources that help us to understand history. It's a great starting point. It's a great place to kind of get your feet wet in, in this area. And so the first one is called The Warmth of Other Suns, Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, this one follows uh, the great black migration uh, of people from the south into the north. It is a fantastic book. I know, I know you're saying this. Uh, your faces are like, I read the dang book for now. Give me a cliff notes. No, like it's, it's amazing. It's super well written. Uh, and yeah, uh, a lot of tears. A lot of tears on this guy. So I'm going to put these in the back so you can look at them and take a picture. We don't have any pre-ordered for you, but like you can look at them in the back. The second one is much more digestible. Ah, audible sigh. This is uh, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. And um, uh, it is a really good book. 72 pages. Uh, I have no problem admitting to you that it was very emotional reading this book. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's a massive primer to understanding uh, American slavery from the vantage point of a slave himself. Uh, this is his first biography. If you don't know who he was, he was an American slave. He escaped slavery and we, we went on to become an abolitionist. He was actually on staff with uh, Abraham Lincoln in his staff. I just think that's massive. <clears throat> and yeah, I don't mind telling you that I cried multiple times reading this book, just seeing the broken ways even that some, some ways that the church operated even back then. Uh, it's one that we encourage and, and hope that these will be beneficial for your equipping in this area. So I'll, again, I'll have those back. Thank you, Bill. Uh, when uh, the sermon's over. But, so just knowing history matters. And here's a directional point. Here's a great first place for you guys to start and look at. Um, but here's a second one, having friendships. Having friendships. And in fact, if I were to tell you to pick one, I would say pick this one. All the uh, book haters were like, praise Jesus. Okay, but I, I, I can't tell you the mercy and grace that have been lavished upon Lauren, my wife, and I uh, over the years from seeking friendships with people who do not look like us. I, I couldn't even begin to explain to you the benefits, the, the growth that has come from those. Um, to have this growing number of minority friendships in my life, African-American, Hispanic folks, that I can truly call friends. And it's been wildly helpful for me. They have been conversation partners. Uh, they have given me fresh perspective on issues that I couldn't come to on my own. Issues I thought I had a good handle on. And for all of us in this room, one of the best gifts that you can give yourself are friendships with people who don't look like you. And let me just tell you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, despite their race or color, need you in their life, just as you need your brothers and sisters in your life. But seeking friendships with people who don't look like you will serve you in ways you could never dream. It will bless you and grow you in so much empathy. And, and with that, let me just say this. Um, in our room, I just want to just speak directly to uh, our minority brothers and sisters who are in this room now or who may be listening later on down the road. I just want to say this. We are really glad you're here. We are really glad you're here. This is your home equally as it is 
our our home. And can I just say this as an encouragement and 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 an ask? Um, Whether the white people in this room know it or not, we need you. Uh, That's just a reality. We need you as conversation partners. We need you as intercessors for us. Uh, We need you to lovingly, kindly help us to see our blind spots when we can't see them. Um, So thank you. Uh, Thank you for being here, and your presence does not go unnoticed at all. It it matters a whole bunch. You matter. So uh, we love you. Thank you for being a part of our church, and our church is better for it. Um. So I just want to, we're kind of wrapping things up now, and I just want to share uh, a couple things. Writing this sermon has probably been one of the more challenging sermons I've ever written. I was telling Derek today I've rewritten and erased and rewritten over the past three, four days. It's, it's been fun. You're welcome, yeah. Uh, it really has been a joy, but it's been difficult. There's all many, a whole bunch of things that uh, you shouldn't say. There's a whole bunch of things you must say. You must say them this way, or you must say them that way. And I just want to tell you that... Uh, both Pastor Derek and myself, we are at peace at saying what we're saying today. We feel comfortable behind that. We, we, we are okay with it. It's a part of who we are, and we hope that that is something you can join us all in. But um, as I was going through all that, I wanted to end this message differently. In fact, I was working on it last night, and uh, I had a feeling that something was just missing, wrong. Uh, I, I don't know how you want to put it, but I think everything that I've said today is helpful. Uh, it's beneficial, it's helpful, and hopefully it's encouraging uh, that we should pursue this Christ-like humility to always be moving in that direction that's making us more like Jesus. And I think and I hope that it will do something for some time. But everything that I have said so far has no ability to produce permanent empathy. It's not gonna, you're not going to get a shot and all of a sudden, ah, I'm good, let's go. Um, there's no amount of things that we can do to do that, to, to, to grow in us a permanent heart towards others who aren't like us. That's just really hard. And hearing helpful things and good advice doesn't tick that box. Um, good advice just doesn't work like that. We're, we're pretty fickle as people come. So at the end of the day, you, can, you and I, we can read every history book on race in America, and uh, we can do that, right? And then uh, we can make sure that all of our friendships look like a UN convention. Like, we can work hard and we can pull that off, and, um, but, but, and those would be good things. Those are good things, but uh, what we learn from Scripture is this, that lasting change can never be granted by simple good advice. It just doesn't work like that. The only thing powerful enough to impart permanent empathy for others in a human part in a human heart is not good advice. It's the good news. That's what we need this morning. That, and that's what's missing. So here's my new last point. Um, purchased people love what Jesus purchased. Purchased people love what Jesus purchased. There is only one way that you and I are ever going to care for a diverse church that Jesus purchased, and that's if we're purchased. You understand? uh, uh, That's if we're purchased. That's exactly what Revelation 5 is saying that Jesus did. Jesus died to purchase a new heart for you and for me. That's what he died to purchase. 
And if you don't know him as Savior this morning, you should not expect any of the things I said earlier to be helpful at all. I mean, they might be nice little tidbits of information, but they're not going to be lasting you in the long run. Because ultimately, it just won't. It might do something for you, uh, but nothing permanent. Without the gospel, there is no hope for permanent, lasting empathy. And let me just say, that's why he came. That's why he came. That's why Jesus came in the ultimate act of empathy. Jesus Christ crosses the ultimate cultural barrier. He came from heaven to earth to a bunch of rebels, and he entered into human flesh to bear the sin for everyone who would trust in his name. He did what we can't do, and he did what we haven't been able to do for generations. He was permanently and perfectly empathetic, dying on our behalf, caring about our cares, meeting our needs where we are, and giving us his spirit as we trust him so we can grow in empathy just like him. But here's the only way that this needle moves forever is if you know him as Savior. If, it, if that happens. Because he didn't just come to inspire us, inspire us with a vision of diversity. Uh, he came to change our hearts to love that vision that is his. Our only hope in this is Christ. And he truly can be yours this morning if he's not. And if he is yours already, trust him. Trust him to soften you. Trust him to speak to you so that you and I can grow in lasting empathy, not just to people, but to peoples for the glory of God. Uh, Let's pray, you guys. After we pray, if you um, want to talk or pray with someone, Pastor Derek and myself and some of us on the response team will be in the back. We'd be uh, happy uh, to meet with you and to pray with you and talk with you. But... Y'all just join me in prayer um, now. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that your plan and your vision for your church is beautiful. It is a diverse church, Father, and we just admit that sometimes we don't know what to do with that. Father, we just ask that you would meet us where we are. Would you create in us hearts that long and care and hurt with and share in burdens with our sisters and brothers who don't look like us, no matter what we look like? Father, would you help us to care for them as we would care for our own families? Father, would you help us to take steps forward into building and creating friendships with people who don't look like us so that we can learn and grow in empathy, that we can be sharp, sharpened in your image, Father, and looking more like Christ and better for that. So, Father, we pray for this church. We pray for our hearts that we would live out a mission that is in love with your vision of a diverse church. We love you, Father, in your son's name we pray. Amen.